you would take your Bibles and open them to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 12 through 24 together. Uh, Police in the United Emirates arrested a Jordanian man the other day. This Jordanian man tried to swindle $22,000 via identity fraud at a local uh, currency exchange office. He was caught when authorities uh, spotted his forged ID. Well, what tipped the authorities off, you might ask? Well, the man had cut and pasted the photograph of Brad Pitt on his ID. For those of you that are familiar with American film, that was probably one of the most famous and still most popular American film stars. Uh, so when we see foolishness happen, it's easily to spot, isn't it? Foolishness is a lot easier to spot, but what, what happens when you see wisdom? What does wisdom look like? When wisdom happens, what does it look like? When wisdom takes place, how, does it, how is it pictured? Well, that's the question that we're going to be unraveling in the text this morning. Yes, foolishness, when it happens, it's easy to spot, but wisdom is not as easy to spot. In fact, sometimes it's very elusive to us today. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Daniel, chapter 2, we're going to look at 12 through 24. Now remember, as we're picking up in 12, what's happened is the king has had some nightmares. Uh, the significance of a king having something extraordinary happen to him has a binding effect on the whole community. So this is not just a private dream that the king has, that he's trying to call the interpreters together so that he can figure out what's personally happening to him. He knows that it's on a global scale. It's on a kingdom Scale. It involves nations and it involves everyone in the empire. And that's why everyone's distressed about the meaning of this dream. Now, the king wants someone to bring the light, wants someone to bring the proper interpretation of the dream. So he goes against common ancient Near Eastern practice. Usually it's tell the dream, then receive an interpretation. But he's coming up to his professional elite worldview experts And he asks of them to tell him the dream, then tell him the interpretation. Now, obviously, that's when the professional elite realize the limitations of their abilities. It's brought home real clear to them. And they can't do this. And they tell the king so. And here's the king's response. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king Uh, to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and his companions. 
And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we have asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O Lord, we do acknowledge that we come to you various states spiritually this morning. And we acknowledge that we need a word from you. And we acknowledge, just as we saw in chapter 1, that we need you to do what we cannot do for ourselves. That only you can do it. And that is open all of our eyes. That is open all of our hearts. That we might see wisdom. That we might look at it. That our imagination might be inflamed by it. And that we might walk in it. Oh Lord, these matters are too great for us. We admit our needy condition. In matters of all wisdom. So, oh Lord, do come down. Be with us. Help us. Bring the light. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not a big fan of picture taking. I think it started as a kid. Uh, usually in the midst of some great fun that you're doing, usually some bonding event with a friend or some significant uh, event that's happening in your life, a personal achievement, a daring adventure, some breathless beauty. Usually in the midst of all that, someone has to pull out a camera. Right? And stop all the action. Pull out a camera, stop everything right in the midst of it happening, and nine out of nine-tenths of the time, it's someone's mom. Right? And it's usually someone's mom who's trying out a new camera. So not only is all the action stopped right in the midst of enjoying something tremendously, but you're standing around there looking at someone who's trying to figure out their new camera for the first time. Did the red light go on? Fellas, fellas, did you see a green beeping light? Did it flash? Trying to fix out the new camera and then trying to herd all your buddies together to take a picture is like herding cats, right? You have uh, David. Smile, will you? Tony, get your fingers back behind Barry's ear. Bobby, you're blocking Daniel. Right? It goes on and it goes on. 
Now, I think this whole event of picture-taking scarred me for the rest of my life. So when my wife, she very innocently asks, oh, let's take a picture, I instinctively cringe and I'm looking for an exit to find my way out of the place. Now, I must confess, though, in spite of the scarring of taking a picture, I love the benefits of pictures. Don't you? I mean, what do pictures do? They capture things. They capture incredible, meaningful times. They capture loved ones, dear ones, beloved ones to you. The pictures have this way of not only capturing them, but freezing them forever for you. So you can grab a picture time and time again, wear them out like dog ears on the side, constantly pulling them up and And immediately when you see the picture, it's like you're transported back to when it happened. And your imagination is inflamed and you relive what was going on over and over again. If there's a loved one, you remember what they were like as they were frozen at that time. Pictures are incredibly powerful tools and gifts to have, aren't they? You can feel the force of what a picture portrays over and over when you look at it. And that's the point of a picture. And in Daniel 2, we're given three powerful, capturing, breathtaking pictures. And the pictures are meant to inflame your imagination. And what I mean by inflaming your imagination, it's meant to not only give light to your understanding, but give light to your heart. So they're not only meant to infuse an understanding and a comprehension in your mind so that you see these great realities, but it's actually meant what a picture does is inflames your imagination. It gets into your very heart so you feel the force of the truth that you're seeing. So what a picture does is it transports you out of a lecture hall and out of a classroom and takes you right to the event itself. And it captures you. That's the power of a picture. Now, there are three pictures that we're going to look at in Daniel 2. Three of them. But only one gives us the breathtaking picture of wisdom. The rest are powerful pictures that point to wisdom in a contrary way. It's like saying when we look at these pictures, you're going to look at it and it's going to say wisdom is not here. This is what it looks like when wisdom is not here. And then when we get to the third picture and we finally see what wisdom is, we're going to practically put a plan together of how to continue to grow and walk in wisdom. So that's our plan. First is to look at three pictures, try to figure out, identify. Yes, that's the picture of wisdom. That's what wisdom looks like. And then we're going to practically pick up the picture of wisdom and look at it and live it for our own life. Okay? That's where we're heading. So let's go ahead and let's figure out picture number one. Which picture is wisdom? Picture number one. The first picture in Daniel, and this is no matter who picks it up, no matter who takes the picture, it doesn't matter who it is. The best picture taker in the world. The first picture in Daniel is this incredible picture with tremendous beauty in it, but someone's big thumb is right in the middle of it. And so when you look at this picture around the outskirts of the thumb, you see tremendous beauty, and it's the beauty of creation. What you see of creation, you see its beauty, you see its truth, you see its goodness. 
It's wonderful. It's clear. It's there. But there's this big thumb in the dead center in the middle of the picture that's ruining the picture. Okay? Now, Romans 1 pictures this as well. And theologians call it general revelation or general light, general wisdom. This is the light, the common general light of creation that everyone has access to, that everyone can see. Everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're a fool. It doesn't matter whether you're a wise person. Everyone has access to it. And this is called general Revelation, general truth, common light. All of us have access to it. All of us can point out the beauty around the thumb. We can all do that. But the big thumb in the way is called sin. And what does sin do? Sin is suppressing a major truth in this picture. Sin puts its thumb on something in the middle of this picture. What this creation picture was meant to do is point to a creator. But what Romans tells us and what we find in this passage is sin, though, covers up the creator in the picture. It's a big thumbprint in the middle of creation. We can't see the creator. We don't make the connections. And so if left to this general light, this common light, we see creation, we see the data, but we miss its connection to the creator. Because what Romans 1 tells us what we're doing is that we're holding that down. We're holding the pointer to the creator in creation. We hold it down. We suppress it. And what Romans 1 says, we suppress it in not honoring the creator. So this creation, this general light says there is a God, but we don't honor him as God. In fact, Romans 1 gets very detailed. It says in creation, God's divineness, his otherness that he's creator and he's all-powerful, is being revealed. And what we do in our sin is we say, "Uh uh-uh. And we put our thumb in the middle of that picture, and we disconnect it from God. Other thing that Romans 1 says is that we don't give thanks to God. So though this testifies to God, everything does, everything points to God being the giver, everything points to God giving us gracious gifts from the breath that we're taking right now to the thoughts that we can have cohesively or clearly think in our head, everything comes from Him. Even the strength and the energy to even rebel against Him right now, everything comes against from Him. And what Romans 1 tells us is that we do not give thanks to God. And the last thing Romans 1 tells us is that we take God... And the worship of him and go find and worship anything but him. The big thumbprint. Now, in this picture, I think my seminary professor said it very well. He was my mentor. He said, creation reveals just enough knowledge about God to us to show us that we hate him. And I know that's a real strong way of saying it. But this picture gives us enough truth to know that we hate God. And when we get to these folks in Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, and we get to the professional consultants, what they're realizing and what they're desperate about is they know they've come to the end of their light. In other words, they have picture number one, and they're able to get some data about creation, but they know anything beyond that they don't have. They have no light beyond common, general, 
truth that everyone in all the world, from the history of the world, from Adam to the last day, has access to. But they know there's another light that God is making them aware of that they don't have access to. And Nebuchadnezzar is desperate. And all the professional elite are desperate in their darkness. They're beginning to know there's something else out there. And they can't see it. Right? Now, the first picture here shows us that biblical wisdom is not gained by years of learning and living in God's world. The most common notion of wisdom today is gain as much learning over the years, gain as much living experiences over the years, and you gain wisdom. And what the scriptures are showing us in this passage and throughout the whole Bible is that gaining learning and gaining living, though useful, (laughs) though extremely helpful, though extremely practical and beneficial to getting along and getting on in this world, is not what biblical wisdom is. The most common understanding, even for many of us in the church today, is wisdom is a pithy proverb and a pithy principle. That is disconnected from doctrine. A pithy proverb, a pithy principle, something about living, something about learning, but it's disconnected from doctrine. Or we think that it's this floating, suspended learning truth or living truth that's separated from the Creator. Remember, all the stuff out here in creation has a big thumbprint in it. Biblical wisdom says all of this is connected to a creator. Okay? The last thing here, even Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Even the most pithy book in all the Bible, what's called wisdom literature, tells us wisdom is not mechanically memorizing all my pithiness and applying it to your life. But that true biblical wisdom starts with fearing the Lord. All right, so what does that mean? What does fearing the Lord look like? What is that picture? What is the picture of wisdom? We've got to keep going. Let's go to the second picture. Now, the second picture happens no matter what camera is used. You use the best cameras you can grab. No matter which one you use, no matter how many pictures you take from it, you will always get the same result. You will grab it and look at it, and you'll look at it, and it's just a black picture. You can't see a thing. There's nothing on the paper. Utter darkness. No vision, no sight, no light, no clarity, no objects to see. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what the professional elite and the philosophers in that time And all the diviners and astrologers, enchanters, the spinmeisters, this is what they saw of the things of God. Of God and His kingdom. Of God and His grace. This is called superlight, and that's what we're going to see here in a second. But what I want us to see is that the darkness in this picture is a very desperate picture. 
There's no light. There's no hope. There's no meaning. There's nothing. You cannot see God in his light. You cannot see God in his grace. You can't see super light. You can't see otherworldly light. You can't see wisdom of another world. You can't see otherworldly realities, spiritual light. And this picture is complete darkness. And this picture is complete spiritual blackness. It's a complete blackout. Can't see a thing. Now, wisdom is in this picture. It's here by recognizing what's not there. Do you get what I mean? Wisdom is in this picture if you realize it's not there and you don't have access to it. So wisdom is here in the missing. Wisdom is here in the absence. You following me? All right, we need to go to the third picture. Let's look at the third picture. Wisdom is found in the third picture. And it's what Daniel 2 and verse 18. Let's look at it. Daniel 2 verse 18. And he told them to seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery. Okay, here's the picture. Here's picture number three. Picture number three is breathtaking beauty. Picture number three is boundless and borderless realities. That if you see the beauty... It will take your breath away. If you see the beauty in this picture, it will capture you. If you do see this beauty, it will inflame your imagination. It will enlighten your mind and it will enliven your heart. If you see this beauty, that's all you need to see. And you will worship and you will trust. You will hope. You will love. You will obey. What is it? We look in verse 18, this mystery. You go to verse 19, it's called the mystery. And then what's very fascinating about the rest of Daniel 2 is that mystery is used six more times in the same type of way. So in Daniel 2, there's this mystery. There's this otherworldly reality that is a mystery in picture 1 and picture 2. In picture 1, this mystery is more than the thumb that's missing. Or what the thumb is covering up. Remember in picture one, the thumb's covering up a creator. It's general common truth that all creatures have access to. The problem is we don't make the connection to the creator. There's knowledge about a divine being. There's knowledge that he's the creator. There's knowledge that he has all power. But this mystery is even more data than that. This mystery being talked about in two is more than just God being creator. It's God being Redeemer. Picture number two says this mystery, if left to yourself, looks like a spiritual blackout. You can't see it. So all of a sudden now in Daniel 2, we're talking about a mystery. It's talked about in verse 22. Look at 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. You go over to verse 22, line 3, we see the light dwells with him. We're still kind of broad here. We've got to figure out what's the specific reality of this. We'll go down to verse 23. Well, it's now called the king's matter. The king's dream and its interpretation is linked in with the mystery. It's linked in with the deep things. It's linked in with light coming from God. So we're still on our way here. Well, now we go to verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, 9, 10, 11, 16, 26, 28, 30, 31 through 45. It's called the dream and the interpretation. And then in 21, let's look at 21. We get a hint, 
a little more color is being added to it. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now jump over to 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would come after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. What's the wisdom? Well, if you're an Israelite, you're struggling to answer that. Because if you're an Israelite, you thought wisdom was found in you, in Israel. But we got Israel now, conquered by Babylon, many of the elite taken away. And it's almost as if those that are there at that time are wondering, where is wisdom found now? Well, we know wisdom is not found in the pattern of God's plan. What Daniel's beginning to realize, and I think those and his three friends, the faithful Israelites that weren't trusting in Israel as the pattern of God's plan to be the end of God's plan. They knew that there's a perfection in God's plan that's still coming. And we know this is the case because 600 years after Daniel, Paul sees this picture of breathtaking beauty of wisdom. And you know what he says in Revelation? I mean, in Romans? The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Okay, well, what is it, Paul? Well, in Corinthians, he says, the mysteries of God. Okay, Paul, help me. Ephesians 1, the mystery of his will. Okay, Paul, keep going. He says in Ephesians 3, the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages. Great, Paul, what's the mystery? Colossians 1, the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 2, God's mystery, quote, which is Christ. There's the mystery. There's the wisdom of God. There's the light of God. There's the breathtaking truth of God. There's the capturing beauty of God and the glory of God and the wisdom of God. I want you to see this. I want to prove this to you. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 30. Your translation, if you have the English Standard Version, is not correct, I'm sorry to say. And I, I can't believe I'm about to say these next words out of my mouth. The NIV got it right. <sighs> Humble pie for Pastor Hatton. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made your, what? Wisdom. Now, most translations then go on to say, and he made your justification or your righteousness and he made your sanctification and he made your glorification or your redemption it goes on and lists wisdom like it's a boom but one of many but you know what the the original text and most scholars now are coming to write about is that wisdom is the focal point the rest in the list are explaining what the wisdom is so it would read like this 
He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, even your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. The wonder here, the beauty here, the breathtaking beauty here is that Jesus is your wisdom and in him, in this wisdom, is God's perfect plan for the ages. The good news that there's a righteousness that you don't have that he does and he gives it to you. And you struggling Christians that are wanting to live wisely in your life, wanting to live practically and godly in your life. The call for you is... In wisdom, in Him is your sanctification. Do you see that? So in other words, wisdom is not found in a pithy proverb. Wisdom is found in a person. And pithy proverbs of learning and living find their power and their source connected to Him. Okay? So now if you look at this particular picture, you'll find beauty... That cannot be contained in a picture, but it is. You'll find greatness that cannot be contained in a picture, but it is. And if you look carefully here, there's another level of beauty. It's a secondary beauty in this picture. And you find the secondary beauty. It's like one of those things that I can never see. I was telling the class the other night. You know those? My parents had one. I think I finally got it when I was 36. I had a picture of Jesus on the wall, and it had all these different pictures, and then finally you'd look at it, and you finally see a picture of what you're supposed to see. But you'd look at it, and everybody would come up to you and say, Jeff, don't, soft eyes, soft eyes, soft focus. I don't get it, I can't see it. But what happens here, if you, if you look, the picture in the third picture is the beauty of Jesus, but within and behind and around the beauty of Jesus is a secondary beauty, almost like a beautiful flower, a beautiful flourishing fruit that's attached to the life of a vine. And we find this breathtaking beauty, this fruitful branch, is the church and creation. And what we find here is that all things find their good, their beauty, their truth in Him. All things find their meaning, their plan, their purpose, their place in Him. And that means all things are made new in Him. Breathtaking beauty. Powerful beauty. Fruitful beauty. Secondary beauty of church and creation. It's not mixed with His beauty. His beauty is just off the charts. But like a branch attached to the vine, we see the secondary beauty. Okay? So what happens here? I need to say a couple things here. The church, God's people, are made new now. In Him, in seeing this wisdom, you're in Him. You're made new now. When you trust in Jesus, when you trust in the wisdom that comes from God, and you gain His righteousness, and now sanctification, He's at work making things new in you, and you gain a redemption, He's purchased you. When that happens, things are made new to you. You begin to see things differently. You begin to see the beauty that defines all reality, but now you're seeing everything in your life from your relationships and the way you see yourself and your identity and the way that you interact in the world. Everything's now connected to Him. And now it's fruitful and now it's meaningful and now there's new eyes and there's new life. 
Okay? You walk in wisdom. When you're now, the gospel is wisdom. When you're in marital conflict and you're in relational conflict, you're not asking, what are my ten steps to control my anger? You're asking, what does believing the gospel look like here? What does it mean to know that I'm a sinner here? And what does it look like to trust in Jesus here? That's wisdom. Wisdom is not a pithy proverb here or a pithy principle. It's coming in contact with Jesus here. When you have trouble at work, and you have trouble with a professor, and you have trouble with indwelling sin in your life, wisdom doesn't say, let me go out and find something practical that might be part of it. And that's what we're going to do here in a minute, because I'm not averse to practicality. But what I want you to see, the first step that wisdom takes is to a person, not a principle. And in taking a step to the person, it's, oh, Jesus, what does it look like to believe you and trust you and believe the good news of the gospel here? What is it like to do that in a horrible work environment? What is it like to do that when you don't want to get up and go on your day because you have nothing to look forward to? Your job is as dry and as dusty and meaningless to you. You live for the Saturday, working for the weekend. What does it look like to believe the gospel in that situation? What does it look like to believe the gospel while you're working? It looks like things that we hear in Ephesians, working unto the Lord, not with the eye of your master or your employer upon you because you fear him or you want to please him. But the text says it looks like in believing the gospel, you have this conscience sense of God's love for you, his pleasure upon you, his delight in you. And you want to do your best for the glory of God. And it doesn't matter if you never get a a hurrah or a way to go or never get acknowledged before all the other workers in your group. Because you don't need it. You don't need it at all. That's wisdom. Okay? And I've got to say one other controversial thing here and then I'll move on. Creation is not made new now. Believers are made new. This creation will not be made new now. When Jesus comes back, that's why there will be a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So those of us that pursue more of a cultural triumphalism need to be careful. You cannot take the substance of creation and Christianize it and make it new. How you handle it might be new, but the substance isn't new until the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Lots of questions in there. I will have to move on on that one. Paul describes the second layer of beauty in... uh, I didn't write down the text, but let me look at it. I think it's Colossians. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see that? Notice how Paul's talking about the wisdom of Jesus now, the one that connects everything. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. 
that everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross, the fullness of him who fills everything in all and all. You see that? Okay. All right. So what separates Daniel from the rest of these guys? What separates Daniel from the rest of the king and all his men? Daniel is used to picking up picture number three. He's used to looking at it and living his life by looking at it. Nebuchadnezzar and the other guys, all they have is number one and number two. Creation with a big thumbprint in it because they never make connection to the Creator. But even that knowledge is not the knowledge that's being talked about in picture number three, which is the grace of God and the glories of Jesus. And in picture number two, a spiritual blackout. They have no knowledge of number three. Okay. Now, looking... How are we doing on time? Okay, we got a little bit of time. Grab your uh, bulletins. Pull open that insert that was in there. Living, looking at and living out of picture number three is a growing process. Old Testament scholar of Daniel put it this way. He says, if we desire wisdom to live in a chaotic and confusing world, then the message of the Bible is enrich your relationship with Christ. What a great, great quote. Let me read it again. If we desire wisdom to live in a chaotic and confusing world, then the message of the Bible is enrich your relationship with Christ. That's how you walk in wisdom. That's how you gain wisdom, because he is the wisdom of God. So some of you have asked me and very recently have asked me very practically. You said, Jeff, how do you do that, though? How do you enrich your relationship with God personally on a devotional? Do you do devotions? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's like the question of, of when you begin to see that God alone is the one that saves us in salvation. Some of our first responses are, well, then why do we do evangelism and why do we pray uh, if God alone does it? And the answer is, because he does it, that's why we do it. Because he saves us, we tell people about Jesus. Because he answers prayer, we pray to him. If he can't do anything about it, we shouldn't do evangelism and we shouldn't pray. Right? Well, in the same way here, what about personal devotions? Well, what I'd like to do is just show you a practical plan. This is my personal plan. This is not the plan. There are many good plans. What you do is what I do is I beg, borrow, and steal from all the good ones. And I prioritize everything and then make it my own. So take what you like, discard what you don't, but here's one model, okay? I just want to quickly run through this with you. Uh, I think many of our devotions, if you're like me, we get hung up in what we do first in getting started. So we don't know what to do when we get started, so we never get started. It does like this. For many times, I used to sit and want to get started, and I think I need to start praying, and then I'd start praying... And then I'd start praying and I'd start thinking about things and I'd lean back in my chair and... Who put that mark on the wall? Your mind just goes. You start thinking. So one of the things we need to do is we need to get as soon as possible to God speaking to us, not us talking to Him. 
If we're relying on our talking to him or our prayer to be the fuel that drives our times with him, we're going to be greatly disappointed and we're going to lack that fuel. But if your devotional life is centered on God speaking to you and addressing you, you're going to have something to say. So first, just begin very briefly, acknowledge God out loud. One of the great things I got from a, I don't know what that movie, that Civil War movie, who was it? Stonewall Jackson. Everywhere he went, he was talking out loud to God. I think that's a great thing to do. Everybody wonders what I'm saying up in my study. Hear me walk by, but you greet God out loud, briefly praise him. I mean, it's good morning, Lord. I praise you for another morning. Thank you, I'm alive. Amen. Then briefly confess any definite sin. Second thing there. In other words, things that you know are there. This is not the time to go grabbing your spiritual pulse and hunting for something. This is the time that you know there is something definitely there. You know between you and the Lord there's something you need to tell Him about a specific sin. So briefly, tell Him what that sin is. Confess it to Him. Trust his son's work for you. And then devotional reading. And again, time is not an issue. One minute, two minutes. Grab a book. The type of books you want to grab here are the type that warm you. These are God-saturated books. These are books that are full of the glories of Jesus. These are not how-to manuals. These are, these are rich in theology and rich in doctrine and rich in warmth in carrying them. Puritans are good for this. Jonathan Edwards is good for this. John Calvin's good for this. There's lots of stuff. John Piper is good for this. Read those works. And if it means just reading a page, just to get you going, getting your affections, getting your affections warmed and your mind beginning to turn on the things of God, do it. Then, fourth, read systematically through a book in the Old Testament and New Testament, one book at a time or one thought unit at a time. What I mean by this is that when you have personal devotions, many of us are in the chapter way. Many of us are in the read the Bible in the whole year way. I'm, I'm all for that stuff, but not for this time. What I'm after and what I think we lack today is thoughtful, reflective sitting in a passage. And so what I mean is read by a thought unit. In other words, if you're reading a chapter and you've got three stories in the chapter, like Jesus, he confronts the paralytic, he goes across the sea, and then he's over here confronting a centurion, we usually will read all three. Or we'll read a little bit. What I want you to do is encourage you to do is just take one of them, one thought unit in a story, one thought unit in a proverb, one thought unit in an epistle, one thought unit in history, one thought unit in pictures in Revelation or in Daniel, one thought unit. And remember, the Word of God is living and active. And in that one thought unit, begin to think it out. So if a verse, as it says here, stands out and hits you or arrests you, Dr. Jones says, don't go on reading. Stop immediately and listen to it. Because we're not about getting done. We're not about getting on. I'm all for reading through the Bible. But if it becomes, I've got to get on. Because I've got to get it done in a year then we're not reading it rightly. Read one thought unit at a time. Camp out. Those of you that uh, are more into uh, teaching, study this passage with all the age you can muster. Get after it. 
pull out your lexicons, pull out your dictionaries, get after that particular passage or that verse. This verse or this passage can become preaching, teaching, counseling, shepherding, leading, discipling, ministry material for you throughout the week. All right. If this verse is as far as you get or this thought unit is as far as you get that day, that's great. Pick it up the next day wherever you're at. I put a reading schedule at the bottom there, too, to kind of go from Old Testament to New Testament. You know, one day I might start, like right now I'm in Numbers. I might read Numbers, and and that's all I get, whatever that thought unit in Numbers is. And then the next day I'll bounce over, which I am, over and say Hebrews, and read a thought unit of Hebrews. But then I might spend the whole week in Hebrews and forget about Numbers for a while, and then I'll bounce back to just have that kind of flexibility, okay? The last is... Honors God-saturated prayer. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Stop for a minute just to be with God. I think this is one of the things that, that we forget to do. Just close everything at that point. Close everything. Sit there. And that particular thought unit that, you, that arrested you, sit there and dwell on the grace of God for you. His love for you. And let it seep into your bones. And then close with a doxology, just brief, punctuated praise. And you're done. This can be 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 2 hours, 5 hours, whatever you want to do. Okay? But the key is to remember that Scripture is what fuels meditation. Meditation is what fuels prayer. Prayer will never lift off the ground without Scripture. You will be frustrated all the days of your life. If you start with prayer, try to use prayer to get you going before you get into the Word. Word first. God speaks first. We answer back. Okay? Now, ah. I'm out of time. This preparing yourself with personal prayer, I'll save for another time. You're looking at it wondering, what in the world is that? This is what I use just to get me in there. I'm not, I have no notions and I have no aspirations and no ambitions that someone's going to read my prayer journal and publish it. I don't have any desire for that. But I do desire to learn how to pray. So this is a way to help me pray. So if you were to look, I have these of the week, and this is what I use. And if you were to look at mine, you would see coded language, you'd see letters, numbers, you'd see symbols, you'd have no clue what it is. So when you get over here to this black heart and you want to try to, what's his sins? You'll never know what they are. But that's the point. I'm just using this to get me in. It's just my pen or my pencil touching the page and these categories engages me for some reason. That's what it does for me. This first box is supposed to be a theta you got a cue or some sort. That just means God. Praise and thanksgiving. Again, that's the brief punctuated praise. Praise Him. Put an arrow. I'd have something like, I praise you, God, and I'd have a P and an arrow to, you're the creator. C, creator. Sustainer. S, redeemer. R. You know, just stuff like that. Over here is confession of sin. Over here, the heart where it's clear. That's how am I doing. That's David saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? It could be stuff like a lot of times you'll see question marks. I don't even know how I'm doing, quite frankly, today, Lord. No clue. Not a clue. Something's going on. I have no idea. 
I'll just have a question mark. The, the circle with a line through it, that's referring to being admitting your need before the Lord. The next one, AA, ask and await for grace. The parentheses there, it's supposed to be a theta with, with the sun again, is always to remember that the glory of God is the focal point in my asking and my awaiting. God's glory is the focal point that keeps me from making God the, the vending machine. Okay? AP answered prayer. All right. We're done. I'm over. Let's look. We're not going to do that last hymn, but we are going to end the sermon. Now, let's get back to Daniel 2. End it here. It flashed through Nebuchadnezzar's mind in probably a nanosecond. You know, the first thought that was going through his mind while he's hearing all this is he's thinking to himself, the only thing worse than being out of control is knowing that you're out of control. And then this voice screams in his head, Never! And that's where verse 12 came out. I'm going to kill them all. I'm the king. Right? Now, the destroyer was Arioch. And he's the captain of the king's guard. And he had to be an impressive figure. I mean, he was trained as a warrior since his youth. His skills had been honed to a sharpened edge from years of campaign, years of conquest, conquering the world with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's a leader among leaders. He's a man among men. He is Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. Had to be an impressive figure. And he's the destroyer. He goes out. He's at the door of Daniel and his three friends. And he's there for one reason. Kill them all. And notice how Daniel responds to him. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Translation, wisdom. He did not panic. He didn't cower. He didn't fall down into a mess on the floor. He didn't go forward in unbelief. Instead, he responded, verse 16, trusting God. Verse 18, prayer. Verse 19, delight. Daniel was used to picking up the third picture. The wisdom of God. He's used to looking at it, and he's used to living out of it. And there's no better time than the present for you right now to say, I'm going to pick up the third picture, and I'm going to learn to look at it. To look at the beauty of Christ being the center of all things, preeminent in all things, everything in your life. And to learn to live by that. 